The scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 13, verses 2 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot is separated from him, Lift up your eyes, and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are uh, continuing in our study of Abram from uh, Abraham from Genesis chapters uh, 12 through 25. Um, we got started on this a few weeks back and then have had uh, some opportunities to hear from others, uh, which has been a, a great blessing uh, for you, as I'm sure. Um, but we're coming back to our study of Abraham, and we're at this passage that's very familiar for, for many of us. And at one level, this is simply a passage about walking by faith and not by sight. Abraham was walking by faith. When a choice had to be made, he made uh, about where he and Lot would live, given everything that's going on between uh, their herdsmen. Abram trusted God. He was walking by faith, and he let Lot choose first. Lot, on the other hand, was walking by sight. He chose the land that seemed right in his eyes, a choice that we will go on to read had dire consequences. And I want to talk about walking by faith this morning, but, but there's something in this passage that I, I don't want us to miss. And it's something that rarely gets touched upon when we study this passage. And that's how God restored Abram after Abram had walked by sight and not by faith. The departure from the promised land, the, the lie to Pharaoh concerning Abram's wife, all of that was an example of Abram walking by sight.
and not by faith. The Abram that we see in Genesis chapter 13 is completely different than the Abram that we saw at the end of Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 13, Abram is worshiping. At the end of Genesis chapter 12, he's scheming. In Genesis chapter 13, he's willing to look out for the interest of Lot, for instance, and all of Lot's herdsmen. In, in Genesis chapter 12, it's all about him, even at the expense of his own wife. So here's Abram in Genesis chapter 13. He's had a dismal failure. He's made some tremendously bad decisions, but God has not given up on him. And I think that's where most of us find ourselves this morning. So yes, we're going to look at Lot and his decision to walk by sight. We're going to look at a couple of principles that we learn from Lot's decision to walk by sight and not by faith. That'll come in handy whenever you have, you know, your next big decision to make. So that's good and that's valuable. However, we are going to especially dial in on Abram. And more particularly, on what God did in Abram. Because most of us, I think, this morning find ourselves on the other side of some bad decisions at some point in our lives. Decisions that have caused others and us a great deal of pain. Decisions, um, you know, from which we're probably still dealing with very painful consequences. And we find ourselves looking at a text like this, and we need to be reminded that we serve a great God who restores repentant sinners. Abram was a great sinner who needed and did repent and was restored. And we need to know as we walk away from this passage that God restores repentant sinners. And then, even more amazingly, confirms his promises to them. It's not just, I'll have you back, but let me tell you how much more my blessings are for you than what you've ever realized before. That's what's happening in Abram's life. I don't want us to miss that for all the principles that we will gain from Lot's failure. So three things we're going to look at this morning. Lot's decision, Abram's restoration, and then God's invitation. So Lot's decision, Abram's restoration, and then God's invitation. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do thank you, as we always do every week, for preserving this portion of your word for us down to this very day. Lord, this is a, a, your word, all of your word, every part is powerful, it's effective, for building us up, for convicting us of sin, for drawing us closer to you, and learning more of your great love for us and your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that is true of this passage this morning. So would you help us to better comprehend the, the height and length and breadth and depth of the love of Jesus for those he came to save? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Lot's decision. We see that in verses 10 through 13. I'm going to hit that as we go back through. But let me first ask this, because I, I think it at one level is a fair question. Based on the information we have right now, not the rest of the story, which you know, but based on the information we have right now, did Lot make a bad decision or a good decision? 
Or at least was his thinking about his decision justified? Some commentators would, would say, absolutely. I mean, come on, think about it as if you were Lot. Put yourselves in his shoes. At one level, his, you know, his logic, his thought process made sense, right? He must have known that God had said to Abram, Canaan is yours and your descendants after you. And so knowing that, you could say Lot did the right thing, right? He's like, okay, if Canaan all belongs to Abram, then it doesn't make any sense for me to choose anything in Canaan. So I'm going to go just to the outer edge of Canaan, Jordan Valley, where he ended up choosing to go. In fact, Lot may have thought, you know, it's, it's probably a good idea since I'm related to Abram, I'm his nephew, just to clear the question, is, you know, is Lot going to try to become the heir, a parent? You know, since Abram and Sarai don't have a, a child, is Lot going to say, well, I'm probably like an heir, so I'll be the guy who gets Canaan. No, Lot, Lot may have been thinking, I'm, we're going to eliminate that question right from the outset. I'm going to choose land outside of Canaan so no one thinks that I'm trying to usurp the throne in Canaan. It's natural that he would choose the best land outside of Canaan. I mean, he's got all these flocks and herds. He's not going to go to some desolate land outside of Canaan. So he sees an area where he's going to be able to you know, take care of his own, and, 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 he, and he goes there. And there's no way he could have known, you know, what we see in verse 13. In verse 13, when it says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Well, there's no way he could have known that. And if you were to say to Lot, Lot, why would you go to a pagan land anyway? He would have said, well, there's pagans in Canaan. The Canaanites and the parasites are there. So, we need to be a little sympathetic with Lot, I think, or at least be willing to see that we often make decisions that seem logical, but aren't necessarily right. Because the author of Genesis wants us to understand that he made the wrong decision. We get clues <clears throat> in the text. <clears throat> we see it when it says that Lot lifted up his eyes. Where are we? Verse 10. <clears throat> and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. There's a little clue. They just came from Egypt. Things didn't go well there. In the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Now that phrase, Lot lifted up his eyes, and Lot saw, and Lot chose for himself. Whenever Hebrew narrative slows down, there's a point that's wanting to be made. And in this case in particular, those verbs we've heard before with Eve. Eve lifted up her eyes, and she saw that the tree was good for fruit, and she took and ate. And in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were desirable, and so they took all that they had chosen for themselves. And now here's Lot lifting up his eyes, seeing that all the land was good, and then taking it for himself. So there's that 
little linguistic clue within the text. If you're reading along with Genesis, there ought to be the sense in which, oh boy, things are about to take a turn here for Lot, which of course they would. And what he didn't see, the author of Genesis wants to make sure we understand is in fact a warning. Abram settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. It's a little warning that there is something that Lot didn't see that leads to a clue as to what he should have done, which is ask God what he should do. Or at the very least, ask Abram. Right? I mean, okay, Abram, you're telling me I should choose. <clears throat> How about you choose? For me, because, you know, God's given you the promise. Um, you're, you're my potter familias. You're, you're the one who's kind of over everything here. So you tell me what I should do. Or he could have said, Abram, I'm sticking close to you because God's favor is on you. And I don't want to get too far away from there. So let's figure out our herdsman stuff, you know. Let's do some biblical conflict resolution, right? Let's stay close together. I'm sticking to you, Abram. But at the very least, he should have inquired of the Lord. He should have asked God. So what lessons do we learn from Lot's bad decision? The first is this. Insight alone is often an insufficient guide. Insight alone is often an insufficient guide. Now, there are some decisions that we can make that you don't need a whole lot of insight. For instance, God has said, these things are clearly things that you are not to do, and these things over here are clearly things that I'm calling you to do. So when it comes to that which is God, God has said to us we must do, or that which he has said we must not do, we don't need to think a whole lot about it. We can just act. However, there's a whole range of things that on the surface, it isn't evident which is right and which is wrong. In fact, sometimes it's just a matter of choosing between two good options, but seeking to discern the Lord's will when it comes to those two good options. When it comes to big decisions, decisions where the answer isn't abundantly clear, the first thing we learn from Lot is that human insight is often an insufficient guide. When you make decisions that seem right in your own eyes, it can be very dangerous. It was for Lot. So here in chapter 13, verse 12, we find that Lot settles his camp, pitches his tents, near Sodom. But by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 12, we find that Lot is now in Sodom. And then when you get to chapter 19, verse 1, we find Lot sitting in the gateway of the city of Sodom, meaning that he was among the elders, the leadership of the city. And then in chapter 19, verse 16, he had to be pulled from Sodom before it was destroyed by God. There was this, well, Pastor Chris talked about this a couple weeks ago, looking at Psalm 1. There's this downward trajectory. There's this way in which once you give you know, some level of credence to sin and dwell there for a while, you can find yourself entrenched in it. And that's what happened with Lot as he just made a decision based on what seemed right in his own eyes. 
How often do we fail to ask questions like, what impact will this decision to take this job or move to this place have on my spiritual health? Or on the health of my family? What impact will this decision have on my marriage? What impact will this decision have on my ability to gather with God's people regularly for worship, to serve them throughout the course of the week, to be engaged in discipleship as we seek to follow Christ together because this isn't a solo affair? What impact will this decision have on that? How often do we fail to take those questions into account and then find ourselves further and further away from the core of what it means to be human? in relationship with God and his people. Second thing, then, that we need to see, if insight alone is an insufficient guide, is that divine inquiry must be added to human insight. In other words, pray, man. <laughs> we got to pray. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a uh, very familiar passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord in all, with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use your understanding. It just says don't lean on it. In all your ways, acknowledge God. God, what would you have me do in this situation? Help me see the things that I can't see. So I don't choose a path that would ultimately lead to my destruction or the destruction of those I love. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to use it. But Lord, I'm going to lean on you. Lot failed to do so. Let's learn the lesson from Lot. Insight alone is an insufficient guide. We need to ask the Lord for wisdom. All right, let's turn secondly then to Abram's restoration. I want to you know, meet Abram 3.0, all right? That's kind of what it feels like when we get to this passage in Genesis chapter 13. Abram 1.0 was the Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 10, who, you know, God calls him to a land that he does not know, and he goes. He obeys. He walks by faith. Abram 2.0 is the Abram that we meet in the second half of Genesis 12. Abram who's off in Egypt. There's a famine in the land. I'm just going to go. Got to get out of here. I'm not going to call on the Lord and trust him to provide. I'm just going to go. And boy, there's Pharaoh. He's going to like Sarai. Sarai, tell him you're, you're my sister. There's scheming, conniving, sinning Abram. Abram 2.0. Abram 3.0. Hey, look at this guy in Genesis chapter 13. This great man of faith who's willing to say, Lot, take whatever you want. My confidence in the promises of God is so great. You choose. What happened? What changed? We get clues, I think, in the passage from his journey. So in... Verses 3 and 4, we read this, and I think there's a spiritual application that we can make to ourselves when it comes to this trek that Abram took. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. There's a retracing of his steps that Abram 
takes. He goes back along the path that he had traveled to the place where he had worshipped at the first. That's a picture of repentance. That's what it means to turn away from your sin and turn to God. It involves, if you will, retracing the steps, acknowledging all the ways along the the path away from God in in which you sinned. God, forgive me. At this point, I can see that I did this. And the consequence of that was all these, this cascading of decisions and, and failures on my part. I own all these things before you, God. Repentance. And then worship. I, I love the fact that the passage that we have before us is bookended with Abram's worship. You have it there in verse 4. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And then you have it in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We have a worshiping, in other words, a, a humbling of himself before the Lord, of acknowledging God's supreme worth by Abram to God from this man who has journeyed from a distant country back into the place where God would have him. Repentance. Worship. What version of you are you on? (laughs) Wow. The answer, of course, is that there are no versions of you. There's just you. And there's just me. Messed up, Wretched sinner. Francis Schaeffer says, glorious ruins. Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified and sinners. The Apostle Paul says, we're set free from sin, but don't live as though you're still a slave to sin. And this coming from the lips of the guy who very transparently said, the very thing that I don't want to do, I do. And the thing I want to do, I don't do. There's no versions of you. There's just you. And there's just me. And there was just Abram before God who restores great sinners. Do you believe in a God who restores great sinners? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Familiar passage. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, we we hear that passage, and we rightly make broad application to the fact that God's ways are inscrutable. Like we, like, like Carl prayed during the, this, this, uh, the congregational prayer earlier today. You know, we can't get our heads around the wonder of who God is and what he has done in creation, let alone in our redemption. But in Isaiah 55, God, through Isaiah, is making a very particular application of that familiar passage, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And it's this in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This has to do with the determination of a holy God to show pardon to sinners, to show compassion to his people when they return to him. There is a divine plea in this passage. Return to me. Isaiah 55 begins with verse 1. Come, you who are thirsty, and drink. Do you believe in a God who abundantly pardons? Joseph Hart was born in London, England in 1712. He was a hymn writer. He had rejected Christianity for most of his life. He heard a sermon by John Wesley, Romans 8.32. So you think about a great preacher and a great text to preach on. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That was the text from which John Wesley preached and Joseph Hart heard it and then immediately wrote a pamphlet titled The Unreasonableness of Religion. But in 1757, at the age of 45, Joseph Hart came to Christ. He wrote a number of hymns, one of which we often sing, Come Ye Sinners. And one of the verses from Come Ye Sinners reads like this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you feel your need of Jesus? Will you believe in a God who abundantly pardons? Run to him. Flee to him. If you've been with him and strayed from him, return to him. Just as Abram returned to Bethel, so you return to the cross. Leave the far country into which you've roamed. Abandon the cisterns that you've dug that hold no water. Retrace your steps. Acknowledge the turns that you took that led you astray. And go back. Go back. Go back to the grace that will never fail you. Go back to the fount of living water flowing from the cross of Christ. Third, God's invitation. In a way, that's part of the invitation of God, to come to him. But God offers more to Abram than just the possibility of return. You know, one of the key words that I, you know, the, the, when you think about Abram in this passage, one of the words that I often hear in commentaries in the previous sermons is the word magnanimous. It's a, you know, silver dollar word, magnanimous or the magnanimity of Abram. I think of big-heartedness. It's a lot easier. I, I dwell in the land of nickels and dimes, not silver dollars. Abram was big-hearted. But do you see how big-hearted God is in this passage? Take a look at God's invitation to Abram. In verse 14, verse 14, we read this. The Lord said to Abram after 
Lot had separated from him. Lift up your eyes and look. Now, there's a word that's missing here in our English translations. It's there in the Hebrew. And it's the word that everywhere else is translated, please. Please. It occurs all throughout the Old Testament, plenty of times in Genesis. There's only three times in Genesis when God says, please. All three times are to Abraham. In Genesis 15, God asked Abram to please believe that I will provide a son in your old age. In Genesis 22, God asked Abram to please sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And then here in Genesis chapter 13, God asks Abram to please lift up your eyes and look at everything that I'm going to give you. Every time that God asked Abram, please, it always involved an invitation to greater faith in the promises. That's the invitation here in this passage. God is magnanimous toward Abram. He is so big-hearted. And he's big-hearted toward every sinner that repents. It's not enough for God to say, okay, I forgive you. I'll let you into my heaven when you die. But there's a lot you've lost in the process. No. God says to Abram and God says to every sinner who repents, let me reaffirm to you my promises because they're yours. And nothing will ever result in those promises that I have made to you being taken from you. You're mine, Abram. I've set my seal upon you. I've called you to myself. These promises that I've made, you don't need to worry about out-sinning them or giving them away. How could, how could Lot... How could Abram be so big-hearted toward Lot? It was because he knew God was being big-hearted toward him. God's invitation is an invitation to greater faith. And he even asks, please, please trust my promise. Please trust me when I tell you that I will give you all I have promised to you. As the New Testament says, after all, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. All the promises of God. God is inviting you to greater faith in his promises. What has he promised you? Well, let's just think about the land. In a previous sermon, I talked about, more broadly speaking, promises that God has given us concerning his presence and concerning our salvation. But let's just think about the land for a minute, because God said to Abram, lift up your eyes, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. See everything that I'm going to give you and your descendants after you. And then Jesus will come along in the Sermon on the Mount and say, the meek shall inherit the earth. And Jesus will say to his disciples, take heart, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
So in a very real way, child of God, son of Adam, daughter of Eve, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. If you go for a walk on this sunny yet not surprisingly chilly day here in Rochester, right? As you look across the the beauty of the landscape, in a very real way, you're looking at that which will be yours one day. As we, God's people, serve together as vice regents over this creation that he called us to cultivate and will cultivate once again unto his glory, enjoying him and it forever, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see. But more importantly than land, even this good earth that God will redeem and restore and give to us as our inheritance, recognize that there is something greater still, and that is the presence of Jesus Christ and his love for us. And that's something we're offered now. Abram was invited by the Lord to lift up his eyes, to look to the north and south and east and west and see all that God would give to him and his offspring forever. The Lord invites you to lift up your eyes as well. Through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.18, we are invited by God to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to see the love of God that is given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. It is a magnanimous love, and it is yours through faith in the God of the promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to take to heart the truths in this passage. And Lord, I think especially as I've prepared this week and and prayed for myself and for this church family, Lord, I think especially that need to take to heart that you are a great God who restores repentant sinners. Lord, help us to remember as we leave here this day that your promises to us are always yes and amen in Christ. Help us to take your promises to heart. Lord, especially this call to lift up our eyes and consider the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ for us, this love that surpasses all understanding. Lord, if there's one thing I pray that you give us a greater taste of, it is that. We need that more than we need anything. And we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ we have it. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.